today, well, this is uh, this week is the week of Ascension, which is a uh, a celebration. If you're paying attention to the church calendar, where we recognize that after Jesus was crucified, three days later he was raised from the dead. And then for 40 days, he appeared to his disciples, teaching them, and then also hundreds of other people. Jesus' resurrection wasn't a private event. It was a public event, uh, verifiable uh, and falsifiable, if you will. He appeared to hundreds of people for 40 days, and then after 40 days, Jesus ascends back to the throne where he sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and as from whence he shall come to judge the the living and the dead, as it says in the Apostles' Creed. But Jesus now sits on this throne ruling. But if I were to ask you the question, what is Jesus doing in his ruling? What would you say? He's just kind of waiting? Like, oh, time hasn't come yet for me to wrap everything up. Just come. Well, that is true. The time hasn't come for him to wrap everything up yet. But he is doing some specific things as he rules. And this morning, I want to just have us consider that part of what Jesus is doing in his ruling, in his ascension that we celebrate today, is that he he is protecting, he is preserving through time, including growing, and he is blessing his people. He is protecting in time. He is preserving through time, and he is blessing his people. And I want to say, and I don't want to sound like some TV preacher, but it is the Lord's intention to protect, preserve, and bless his people. That is his intention. It is his intention, if you're in Christ, to do that for you in your life, to preserve you, to protect you, to bless you. Now, that is a long story, and sometimes if we thin slice it, when we look at that thin slice, we're like, well, I'm not sure I see so much protection, preserving, and blessing. Fair enough, but we do see it in history and probably in our own lives, even though our own life is relative thin slice also. By Jesus' death on a cross, he, he atones for all of our sin, past, present, future. In his resurrection, he completely breaks the power of death for his people so that really for us, in Christ, death has no threat anymore other than discomfort. It is not ultimately threatening to us. And in his ascended state as the ruling king, he governs all things through his works of providence, we just talked about in our confession, by which he intends to bless, preserve, and protect his people. And we experience this, we become aware of this as we trust in his kingly goodness to do this, to bless, preserve, and protect. But when that that trust grows hazy, it becomes all too easy for us to take to ourselves, to maybe usurp God's authority, God's responsibility to bless, preserve, and protect us. And we believe that we are ourselves the source of that blessing, preservation, and protection in our own life. And it can be pretty effective to do this. It can be pretty effective to take that responsibility. And because it seems so effective we become numb to the reality that it's also causing a sickness in us to do that. 
we've embarked on a home, uh, on a bathroom remodeling project. Um, I don't really have a vision for the whole thing of it yet. I just know that we, we started tearing things out. I'm not sure the wisdom of all this. Um, but our neighbor had a dumpster, and she's like, hey, you can fill the rest of it up. We're like, cool, right? We've been, uh, and so we, we pulled some stuff out of the bathroom and out of the basement, and now we have stuff out of the bathroom and basement and uh, trying to figure out what to do. Part of that was uh, I was going to address some of the trim in the bathroom. It just needed cleaned up, and it needed repainted. And this is a piece of really solid oak trim, right? And it's just this piece of trim. It's not special. It just looks really solid and really strong. Uh, and though this is several feet from the water source of our bathtub, as I started to get into it, I realized, wow, something has happened where there's been some water got behind the wall a little bit and went over a few feet and down a few feet and over a few more feet. And this really solid work, uh, piece of trim actually is beginning to rot. I didn't know that from looking from, an out, from outside. In fact, right on top of that trim where it's rotten in the back, it's still super solid, but it's rotting from the inside out. It's rotting from the inside out. And as the text we're looking at this morning from 1 Kings shows us that in the life of King Solomon, the life of King Solomon is actually rotting from the inside out. And it is a, we often say we should, you know, the, the characters in the Bible are not examples for us to follow, but sometimes they are cautionary tales. I mean, maybe we don't, maybe Solomon is a good picture of what we don't actually want to be and do. And that this rot, this inside-out rot in Solomon's life actually is the catalyst for a civil war in Israel where the northern kingdom is divided from the southern kingdom and they never recover from it. So if you're reading through the Bible, you realize that when going into the promised land, there are 12 tribes in one united empire. And then a few years later, it's all broken apart. Like, how did that happen? Well, here's how it happened today. Um, So we're going to see that the life of Solomon kind of rotted from the inside out, that that's all too common for you and me as well. And finally, there is a true and faithful king who is faithful to us even in our rot. There's a true and faithful king, an ultimate true and faithful king who is faithful to us even in our rot from the inside out. If you remember the story so far, God makes this promise to David. He said, David, 2 Samuel 7, there will be one from your line who will sit on the throne of this eternal united kingdom forever. And we saw that one eventually is Jesus who comes and he sits on the throne. And he ascends to the throne is what we we're celebrating this week the ascension of Jesus. And he, he ascends to the throne and he will reign forever. But what's also embedded in that promise was, David, if your own children are faithful to me, they will, it will actually be an unbroken line. They will sit on the throne and I will bless them and I will cause this kingdom to expand. And 70 years later, the kingdom's all broken apart. 70 years later, after God makes that promise to David, the kingdom's all blasted apart. It's like, what happened here? Here's what happened. Solomon happened who was the very first son of David right after this promise. Like, they didn't make it long. Before they go into the promised land, we've mentioned this a few times, but I actually want to read it from Deuteronomy 17. It's in your insert. Before they go into the promised land, God says to the people, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. 
And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. This was known as the law of the king. God said, here, I, there's especially the way I want my kings not to live. Here it is. Do not multiply chariots, do not multiply gold and silver, and do not multiply wives. Now, why would they do this anyway? Why does he have to tell them this? Because Israel was to be marked by the fact that Yahweh was their protector and defender. Why would they multiply chariots? Because they were afraid. And they got to, we have to have bigger defenses. We have more chariots, more horsemen, more horses. We got to get more horses. Where are we going to get horses? We don't have a lot of horses in Israel. Oh, we need to go to Egypt to get horses because they were famous for the horses. And we need to import them from Egypt. God said, I just led you out of slavery. And besides, I'm going to protect you. You don't have to multiply horses. You don't have to multiply silver or gold because I promise to give you the wealth that you need. You don't have to multiply wives. Now, what is that talking about? It's not actually talking about polygamy so much as these would be political alliances, right? So if you uh, want, in the, in the ancient Near East, what was common is for a Uh, a king to marry the wives of all the tribal leaders around so he would be their son-in-law so there would be a family peace and so people would be less inclined to attack a village that their daughter was in, right? So if you're the the enemy king, you're not going to attack. So, But God's saying, that's not what I gave marriage for. I will protect you. I am marking you out among all the people on the earth. I will protect you. I will preserve you, I will defend you, I will bless you. And it will be alluring for these kings once they start getting power and prestige to want to accumulate more power and more prestige. Therefore, I'm giving you the law of the king. This is the one thing they must not do. Now, obviously, I'm saying this to you in the beginning of a sermon for a reason. So David Uh, is raised up as king of Israel. God makes a promise to him. David dies, and his son Solomon comes to the throne. 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, Solomon loved the Lord. I want you to remember that phrase. There's two times that phrase occurs in all of Scripture. One of them is right here, and then one of them is in 1 Kings 11. Solomon loved the Lord. Although he did worship and sacrifice at the high places. What did that mean? Taylor talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is probably, scholars think, Solomon not worshiping the pagan gods at this point, but worshiping Yahweh at the pagan places. It was frowned upon but allowed. It was easier to do that than to go to Gibeah where the, temp, the tabernacle was because that was too many miles away. It was a convenience thing, but it was actually also teaching the people to blur the lines a little bit. Though it wasn't, most people think this probably wasn't a sin of Solomon right here to do this, just stupid because he was the leader. Right? In 1 Kings 3 also, you may know this story. God comes to Solomon and says, I intend to bless you. Ask of me that I may give you uh, uh, gift to bless your kingdom. And Solomon famously asked for the gift of wisdom. He says, this, this is too great a people for me to manage. Would you give me wisdom and understanding that I may be a good king? And the Lord responds by saying, you know, that's a really good, that's a really good ask. I will bless you with wisdom, and I will actually give you some honor and wealth as well. Right? 
And then after that, Mike preached on this a couple weeks ago, God commissions Solomon to build the temple. This place that was the symbolic presence, central presence of God with his people. It was to be this majestic building program, the greatest building in Israel. By today's standards, it would be billions of dollars, right, because of the amount of gold. And right now, gold's $1,851 an ounce. Um, so billions and billions of dollars. I don't know if the relative cost of gold was the same back then, but it was an expensive program, program and it was supposed to be the most stunning building in all of Israel. So things look really good. Man, Solomon, he's such a good leader. He's fantastic. He's solid. Just nothing there. 1 Kings 10. Now, uh, Solomon's famous, right? Now when the queen of Sheba, which is in the east, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Did you catch that? Like, she's breathless. Oh, Solomon. Like, breathless is what it's saying. She's breathless. She's overwhelmed by Solomon's grandeur. She, so this, he has world-renowned wealth and wisdom. He looks very strong. And this queen from the east comes bringing gold and spices to honor this strong-looking king. Okay, if you know this birth account of Jesus, this should sound a little bit familiar to you. So everything is great. The leader in Israel is loved by everyone in Israel. Not really. And beyond Israel, he's famous. Everything looks good. But remember the law of the king. Do not multiply chariots and horses. Do not multiply silver and gold. And do not multiply wives. Verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now that in one year probably means uh, every year, the average, uh, per year. 666 talents of gold. How did this gold come to Solomon? Taxation. He taxed the people. This was gold, verse 15, besides that which came from the explorers and from the businesses of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. So, you know, he he taxed businesses too that had you know, export and import services. And there were smaller countries because Israel was strong. They would pay tribute to Israel so they would protect the smaller countries. So all this gold is coming into Solomon. Verse 26, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. This is the scripture telling us, you know, the law of the king. Solomon is breaking it point by point by point. See, there's a problem with the generosity of God. A significant problem with the generosity of God is that he gives really good gifts to sinful people. (laughs) Like us. Right? If he waited till we were no longer sinners to give good gifts, well... We would, there would be no good gifts given. But he's generous. 
That's his nature to give. So he gives Solomon some wisdom and some wealth and some status, and some of you have similar gifts. Wisdom, wealth, status. Actually, I mean, compared to the rest of the world, the rest of history, most of, if not all of us in this room, have significant wealth. Wisdom, wealth, status. Uh, Maybe a particular skill that you have. Maybe some career success. Maybe some notoriety. Maybe you've won some acclaim. Maybe you've done a good job and you've been recognized for it. Maybe you have some vibrant relationships in your life. Maybe your, your marriage, maybe with your kids, maybe some good friends, whatever. That's a gift. Those are good things. Maybe your home. Maybe you are handsome or beautiful by worldly standards. Right? I'm not saying all of us. Some maybe, right? Uh, in our culture, God's been very generous with resource to those who believe and those who don't believe alike. Very generous. He is inclined to give good gifts to those who will then turn and use those gifts for themselves. God is inclined to give good gifts to those who are inclined to turn and treat those gifts as if they are the source of life and not from the source of life. God is inclined to give good gifts to those of us who are inclined to turn around and let them make us self-centered or fearful or independent from God or to seek an identity in them or have a, expend, expend undue amount of energy thinking how we can preserve these things or maximize these things. Apparently, this is Solomon's story. Solomon says, I w- give me wisdom. And the Lord says, I will give you wisdom. And then Solomon uses that wisdom and employs it in ways contrary to what God's already revealed, namely to multiply chariots and gold and silver and horses. Solomon, we know from archaeology that under Solomon's reign, the, the, the border towns of Israel were built up. Why are border towns important? Well, there's not really any communication in those days, and they're the first line of defense and the first, you know, the early warning system, and they've got to be strong. That makes sense. That if, you're, if you were all the nations around, that would make sense if you don't have Yahweh. And in the moment, Solomon forgets that he has Yahweh. So it's like, we've got to build up and fortify these cities. To do that, we need more chariots and more horses. We don't have enough. Hmm. Well, we need the cities. We better go get some chariots from Egypt. Solomon uses his wisdom to build up the economy of Israel. Sometimes it's good. They, were, they led the world in metal smelting and metal refining. No problem with that. But they also made alliances, business alliances with the pagan nations around, which were contrary to what the king was called to do. Um, and he even borrowed money from Tyre, which is a pagan nation to the north, right, to, to, uh, to fund this building program because God said to Solomon, I want you to build this awesome temple, magnificent. And Solomon says, yes, and I'm going to make everything else magnificent too. And so he just he taxes his people heavily, and they hate it. That's actually part of the reason the kingdom breaks apart in the next generation because of the taxation of Solomon. Uh, He takes some of his own countrymen and puts them in a form of slave labor, conscripts them to work because he can't afford to pay them. He has to force them to work, and he can do it because he's in power. Uh, So there he has the horses. He has the gold. What about the wives? Now, this is one place where Solomon excelled them all. Okay? 
1 Kings 11. Oh, my gosh. Now King Solomon loved, now, full stop, 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 11, after all the success and all the building and all the power, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. That means those outside of Israel. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Okay, as an aside, this is one of the reasons we say we marry in the Lord. New Testament also talks about it. But you're to marry those in your faith community, those who are followers of Jesus. So if you are not married here, if you are not married, and you marry someone who is not a believer, you are sinning. This is not God's plan. It is a good way to have heartache for a long time. Now, I realize some of you may be married to non-Christians. Okay, we get that. You are to love as Jesus would love, right? But just we'll try to save future heartache. If you are here and you are not married, please make a commitment to yourself and to the Lord. I will only marry in the Lord, and I won't do dating as evangelism, right? So this is often a case like, oh, I'm sure he'll change. I'm sure she'll change. Okay, let's see if they change first, and then, then you pursue them. Okay. That's not in this text. It's just that I have children. So, um, okay, so this isn't about romance. It's a thousand women. It's not about sexual conquest. He's old. Okay, so uh, what's this about? Safety and security and stability. This is about power and political alliances and becoming related to all the right people in the entire region, the entire Middle East. Uh, Some would be wives. Some would have junior status as concubines. Uh, If that's maybe the, the, the family couldn't pay as much tribute. Maybe they could be elevated down the road as a as a wife. Um, it's probably also kind of a flex for Solomon. Like, look look at the household I can support. Seriously? Um, So it's helpful to know, and this is, there's often confusion about this. This is just the Bible describing something, not prescribing how things should be. Like the Bible, a lot of times, just describing sinful actions. This is one of those places. It's not God's plan for beautiful family life. You know, each person marry a thousand spouses, a thousand wives. This is, that would be stupid. Um, This is just describing things not prescribing things. I had a, a friend reach out to me recently and said that he was no longer attending church because, uh, you know, he's reading and somebody was teaching him that in the, in the early church they met in homes and churches aren't meeting in homes, so I'm not doing that. I'm like, well, that's not a command. It's just describing what happened in a refugee situation. It's a confusion between what's descriptive and what's proscriptive or prescriptive, right? The Bible is not prescribing this way of behaving. It's actually criticizing this way of behaving because Solomon is breaking the law of the king. Um, and his wives, verse 3 continued, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, 
that would be overstating the role of his wives in this. Solomon's an idiot. Verse 4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their God. And I just want to point out that Molech is the God to whom they sacrificed children. Now, I don't know if Solomon was doing that or not, but he's, he built the worship space for Molech. Look, just because we have walked with the Lord for a long time, or maybe bear, borne a lot of fruit in our life, or have a great reputation, is no guarantee that we will finish well. Solomon did not finish well. He didn't. The Lord works through humble trust in his kingly desire to preserve, protect, and bless his people. And when that humble trust gets hazy and we think we are the source of that protection, preserving, and blessing, things go sideways in a hurry. And it went sideways in Solomon's life. So he's like, I know God pledges to protect us, but just in case he doesn't, I'm going to multiply chariots. I know he's promised to protect us, but just in case he doesn't, I'm going to have all these political alliances. I know that he pledges to protect us, but just in case he doesn't, I'm going to have maybe Chamosh, the god of the Sidonians, will. Here's a backup plan. Here's a backup plan. We live as the people of God without a backup plan because we do not need one. When we were entering into COVID, the very first week, we were trying to figure it out. We were going to go online because everything was shut down. And we got here. Ben and I were doing the worship service, Ben Flack and I. And uh, we, we found out we didn't have the bandwidth at the time to do a live broadcast. We're like, okay, we're going to record it. We've never done this before. We're going to record it. And so we get all ready to record it. And right before Ben presses record, he says this, no do-overs. No do-overs. And it's brilliant because, you know, the temptation, if you always have a, if you have a, a do-over possibility, you use the do-over possibility. And like, he's basically saying, we're operating without a net. You know, every week, Roger, you preach and you don't get a do-over. You can't just start, stop and start over again. We're going to treat it this way. We screw up the song. We're just going to say, oh, we messed up. And just like we do every week, no do-overs. You don't need a do-over. Guys, we have the Lord. We don't need something in our back pocket. Solomon's like, I need something in this back pocket and this back pocket and everywhere else. Lots of potentials for do-overs. Verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, like your ongoing practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give 
one tribe to your son, for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Two just observations here. Ending well, and I want to talk especially to those who would consider themselves middle age or north of that. Putting myself in that group, but only recently. Ending well has everything to do with how we answer this question. Whom do you worship? What do you worship? If you have had some measure of success in this life, that is, it is especially important that we ask and answer this question, or we will not end well. We will actually rot from the inside out. And though we look great, and though we look strong, and we look successful, there's a rot going on in our bones where we think we actually are the source of anything in our life. Who do we worship? What do we worship? And we might say, well, I don't worship idols, so I'm kind of clear from that. You know, Ezekiel 14, there's this great quote from Ezekiel. He said, uh, the Lord says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. What the Lord's saying is, oh, idolatry is, not an, is first an internal reality before it's an external reality. In your heart of hearts, who do we trust as the source of protection, preserving, and blessing? This is the question. Now, maybe we can just say, well, what's some diagnostics here in this passage? Well, what are we trying to protect? What are you worried about losing? What are we fearful about losing? Where do we feel prickly about being dishonored or underappreciated or not revered the right way? What is the health of our relationships, maybe particularly our marriages? I'm just take, picking the trailheads that are in this passage. Ending well has to do with everything to do with how we answer the question, who do we worship? What is uppermost in our affections? What is most important? It's very simple, but very challenging. Second, when we are faithful, God is faithful. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. David, or the Lord says, I'm going to continue the promise I made to David. I know, Solomon, you're not faithful, but I am going to be faithful. I'm going to fulfill the promises that I made. Because I love my people, I will show them that this is not the way. I will show them that accruing power to themselves is not the way. And in grace, out of love, I will divide the kingdom and whittle it down to a smaller group. And so, you know, coming into the promised land, there were 12 tribes, a unified kingdom. After this, it blows apart and the, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel after this, this is the 10 tribes. And then the two southern tribes are Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin's inside Judah and it gets absorbed into Judah. So it's Judah and the rest of Israel. The northern kingdom is faithless forever. They have zero good kings and they are gone forever forever. The southern kingdom, for a few hundred years, you know, they have like five good kings and that's it. And they're only marginally good, right? And yet God is faithful to them over and over and over again. Why is that? Why is God willing to reduce things to a remnant to accomplish his purposes? Why is that? 
We see it over and over again in Scripture. Why does God use a remnant to accomplish his redemptive purposes? Here's why. It was never, the story has never been about God accomplishing his purposes by being faithful to a strong people. It's always been about God accomplishing his purposes by, uh, through a people who is faithful to a strong God. It's not about the strength of the people. It's about the strength of the God. And so he's willing, he doesn't need strong people. He uses faithful people who trust in his strength. He did then, he does now, he will tomorrow. That's how he, he executes his rule and reign in this earth. The Lord raised up, verse 14, the adversary against Solomon, Jeroboam. His name is Jeroboam. He also lifted up his hand against the king. I cut out a bunch here. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam rose and fled to Egypt and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Solomon's eulogy would have been awesome. Because when he died, Israel was at its height. It was its biggest and wealthiest. People would have stood up and say, he is the greatest king ever. And all the time there was rot inside because he was not worshiping Yahweh, but had taken charge of Yahweh, of God's rule and reign in his own life. He said, I'm the source. First uh, Kings chapter 12 And when all Israel saw that King Rehoboam did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And that's the separation. When God took Israel in the promised land, there were 12 tribes. After this, there's one tribe and a mix that's hardly even following the Lord. Uh, let me just, yeah, let me just wrap here. Um, Solomon's life is a cautionary tale to us. I feel this as a as a as a guy who's in still in middle age. Right, you have some fruitfulness in life. You have some success. You have a little bit of a bank account. You have good relationships. I'm very thankful for all the gifts the Lord's given to His life. Many of you are good gifts God has given to me. And many of you in this room are good gifts God has given to each other. And we drove here in cars, and we're going to go home to a house. We have unprecedented comfort and wealth and ease from any time in history, and it's so easy for that to creep into the center. And I still believe we've got to preserve this. We've got to preserve it. All the time we have a king who says, it is my intention and delight to preserve, protect, and bless you. Jesus, of course, is the true and better Solomon. Solomon abandoned his faithfulness to increase his strength. Jesus, in his faithfulness, gave his strength away. First in the incarnation, and then at the cross, where he says, do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 warrior angels right down to this spot. I can do that, but I'm giving that away. Why? Solomon 
Solomon used his people to protect, preserve, and bless his wealth. Jesus, your Savior, uses his wealth to protect, preserve, and bless you. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? That the utmost affection and intention of the reigning king of the universe is to bless, preserve, and keep you. Part of the reason we go to the communion table every week is we need a multi-sensory reconnection with that reality. We say communion looks back to what Jesus did, forward to where we will dine with him, and presently now where he stands in heaven and ministers his grace to us through the Spirit. If you're in Christ, this table is open to you, and we want you to come. And we want you to take the bread and the cup and be, bring it to yourselves and know that we have a singular faithful king who protects us preserves us, and blesses us. Let me pray for us and invite us to come to the table. We'll go to the back, grab a piece of bread and either white grape juice or red wine and return to your seats. Lord Jesus, you are a faithful king, ascended king. Let us be sober by thinking of a life like Solomon. And let us see even more clearly your intention to love your people well. You've already given your life for us, Jesus. Now you reign to give your spirit to us in mercy and grace. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. As you prepare, would you please grab your bread and your cup?